0: Welcome to A Dark Turn, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Kevin Deutsch. Here on the show, our goal is to take you deep inside the world of criminals and criminality and to illuminate the darker parts of American society, especially those where violence and psychopathy collide with the American ideal. On today's show, we'll be discussing a remarkable new account of an essential piece of American mythology, The Trial of Lizzie Borden. This book... That we'll be discussing on today's show is based on 20 years of research and recently unearthed evidence by the author lawyer and researcher cara robertson the trial of lizzie borden tells the story of one of the most sensational murder trials in american history when andrew and abby borden were brutally hacked to death in fall river massachusetts in 1892 the arrest of the couple's younger daughter lizzie turned the case into international news and her trial into a spectacle unparalleled in American history. Reporters flocked to the scene. Well-known columnists took up conspicuous seats in the courtroom. The defendant was relentlessly scrutinized for signs of guilt or innocence. Everyone, rich, poor, suffragists, social conservatives, legal scholars, lay people, had an opinion about Lizzie Borden's guilt or innocence. Was she a cold-blooded murderess or an unjustly persecuted lady? Did she or didn't she? The popular fascination with the Borden Murders and its central enigmatic character has endured for more than 100 years. Immortalized in rhyme, told and retold in every conceivable genre, the murders have secured a place in the American pantheon of mythic horror, but one typically wrenched from its historical moment. In contrast, Kara Robertson, our guest today, explores the stories Lizzie Borden's culture wanted and expected to hear and how these stories influenced the debate inside and outside the courtroom. She based her account on transcripts of the Borden legal proceedings, contemporary newspaper accounts, unpublished local accounts, and recently unearthed, unearthed letters from Lizzie Borden herself. Her book offers a window into America in the Gilded Age, showcasing its most deeply held convictions and its most troubling social anxieties. Kara... Uh, she's she's just a fascinating uh, uh, writer and um, someone who's obviously so talented and so uh, uh, familiar with her topic that she can seamlessly share what she's learned with you. And this is a lifetime of work that she's done on the Borden uh, cases. She began researching the Borden case as a Harvard undergrad in 1990. Uh, she holds a PhD from Oxford University and a JD from Stanford Law School. She clerked at the Supreme Court of the United States, served as a legal advisor to the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia at The Hague, and she's written for various publications. Her scholarship has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Humanities Center, of which she's a trustee, and The Trial of Lizzie Borden is her first book. I spoke with Kara last week about her research, uh, how the uh, trial... uh, uh, and a and, and story plays to a modern audience, um, and what uh, people are taking away from the Lizzie Borden uh, story in a modern context. Uh, here's my conversation with Kara Robertson.
1: Kara Robertson, thank you so much for joining us on A Dark Turn today to discuss your book, The Trial of Lizzie Borden. We really appreciate, appreciate your coming on. Thank you. This book really blew me away because like like so many Americans, I think I was familiar with the sort of American mythology and mythos of the Lizzie Borden story. And your book sort of got past the mythos and and told us what's you know, what is remarkable about it and, and, and how it got into the American popular lore, but also why it was why why it became such this block, this blockbuster case and why it captured the American imagination. The book is 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 a a wonderful, riveting uh, true crime account of the trial um, that that really captured the imagination of the country, and, and really has been capturing uh, the imagination of Americans for for uh, uh, in, ever since. And new generations bring their own spin to a Victorian true crime drama, and you really capture all of it as one of the the foremost experts in America on this case. Uh, Cara, just tell us a little bit about. Um, I I know you began looking into this case, uh, when you were studying at Harvard, uh, in nineteen ninety. Tell us a little bit about what drew your interest to the Lizzie Borden case, uh, and how that interest progressed throughout your career. Uh,
2: yes, I start, I started um, working on it. I was looking for a topic for a, an undergraduate thesis, and I thought, oh, well, this is an interesting mystery. You know, it, it it's sort of a a whodunit. And even if you think you know who done it, it's certainly a why done it. Um, and then as I uh, did more research, I thought, oh, I really like the idea of um, using a trial, particularly one that, that received that kind of uh, press attention as a window onto the Gilded Age of American history.
1: And so you, you began studying this. So this was 30 years ago that you first got interested. How how did- right. Yeah. And so so how did that and you and you also uh, you, you also have a, so you have a Ph.D. from Oxford and you studied law at Stanford um, and, you, you know, you worked as a, you worked at the International Criminal Court, International Criminal Tribunal at The Hague. And so you bring the law at the law. Um, you, you view this case not only through a true crime and journalism prism, but through a prism of, of law. And tell us just a little bit about how those two things fused together for you, for you and as you progressed in your sort of Lizzie Borden scholarship over
0: the years.
2: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, each, each level of education plus my um, work experiences as a lawyer, you know, each added another layer uh, to my interpretation of the case or rather how I, you know, the added another lens through which to see it. Maybe is the better way to put it. Um, so that I, I began to see that it was, you know, I had thought it was pretty rich material before, given that it had endured, um, in the popular consciousness for so long. But I saw that there were lots of aspects about the case that, that hadn't really been studied. Um, and so what I, uh, became committed to, um, after I picked it up again, was, um, to, um, Tell it in a you know tell it in as straightforward a way as possible using all of the legal transcripts that were available um, as much of the newspaper reporting as I could as well as primary sources um, and so to give the reader a sense of how the story actually unfolded at the time and then
1: um, so at the end that the reader can uh, draw his or her own conclusion what what's remarkable to me is that the, the way how, how with, with you draw the characters with such depth using um, uh, using archival materials and research and obviously you, you did exhaustive research I mean there's uh, to draw these characters because you don't you not only have Lizzie Borden uh, drawn very vividly for the readers but also the attorneys the judges the newspaper reporters who covered the trial all these people are really vividly drawn and come to life Um and you take them out of that Victorian era and you put them on the page, and, and it's like they're here with us reading uh, when we're reading it, which is, I think, the highest compliment you can pay um, a historian and, and journalist and someone who's taken a case that's that's this old um, and, and 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 making it relevant for readers today, um, using that material from the time. It was just remarkably done. How did you? Um, how much of this material was already in the uh, publicly known? Uh, how much of it, uh, if any, was did you did you discover and, and sort of how did you how did you get a handle on all this material? You've obviously you I mean, you must have covered hundreds of thousands of newspaper articles, books, transcripts. H- how did you approach, um, I guess, uh, that that level of uh, that the mass of, of, of research that exists on this case? And how did you how did you call and and and, and do this? Because it's just such a, it seems like such a heavy lift. Um, so just tell us a little about what the landscape was like from your perspective and then how you, how you worked it out to, to, to bring it all together in this, in, into this powerful narrative. Uh, well, thank you. Um, I, uh, I really enjoyed it. So, so that, you know, I hope that that's evident as well. Yeah, that, that um, helps. feel like a slog for me. Um, I love the archival work.
2: Um, so I have the, you know, advantage when you have a, um, a trial that is unusually long for that era. Um, it lasted about 13 days, but there were also um, reports from the inquest that are uh, published separately. There's a preliminary trial, uh, and then there, because this was a case even at the time of, of tremendous public interest, um, there were in addition to all the local papers that you would expect expect there were the you know what you might call the super regional papers, uh, the papers from Boston. Um, and then uh, the uh, New York papers also sent correspondence, so uh, there was this um, wealth of what you might call, you know, color commentary in addition to the what we in the law call the cold legal transcript, um, so that the story uh, could be fleshed out more. And then I was able, because of uh, the prominence of many of the individuals involved, to find out more about them as well, you know, their lives outside this trial. Some of the newspaper reporters were uh, important enough that they had written memoirs and things were written about them. Um, and the same uh, was true of some of the lawyers. There were also some materials from the prosecutors and the defense that had been, uh, you know, just kept by their families. Uh, and those eventually... Went to the Fall River Historical Society, so some of that material uh, had not been seen before, and uh, the same is true of some of the correspondence um,
1: between Lizzie and her friends when Lizzie was uh, in jail. That's fascinating. The the um, it, it just the, the materials are just it, it was, it's it's just remarkable um, the way that it's used in the book the way these these materials are used in the book and bringing the case to life. Uh, for, for our younger readers out there, for our younger listeners out there, who may have, you know, even they probably heard of, of the Lizzie Borden case, but um, like myself, they might not have known the details. Um, if, and I should have done this first, but I got so excited about the book, I, for, I forgot to ask you a little, sort of give you a, a, to give us a little bit of a lay of the land, um, just, you know, some basic facts about the case. And then, if you could, after that, Tell us a little bit about why you think this case, which on its face seemingly seems sort of, okay, it's a double murder, um, you know, possibly by someone in the family, but you know, in America today, it sort of seems like we get that a lot. So what was it about this case in that time that, that made it so dramatic and such a draw for people from all over the country to follow in the papers? Yeah,
2: well, Fall River, Massachusetts was a, was a then very prosperous mill town, um, so it, it, it had a significance um, that, you know, would, would not be evident to people today, um, and it had uh, an extremely um, wealthy upper stratum of people who who owned the mills. Um, it was uh, the third largest city in Massachusetts and, and um, America's center for textile production at the time, uh, but it was otherwise, you know, a, a little bit provincial um, and quiet enough so that So that um, when uh, word went around that on the morning of August 4th, 1892, there had been a grisly double murder, uh, that of Andrew Borden, who was a prosperous local businessman, uh, and his second wife, um, Abby, Um, it caused, you know, it was enough to cause international, I mean, sorry, it was enough to cause national news. Um, They were found hacked to death in their home, which was near the city center. And so the assumption was initially that, you know, it just had to be the work of a madman. Um, The details were so gruesome. Abby um, had been felled by 19 blows in an upstairs guest room. Uh, And about an hour and a half uh, later, Andrew received 10 blows as he lay sleeping in the city room sofa. Um, His face was... Up, that it resembled raw meat um, but according to one of the first people on the scene the house itself was in what he described as apple pie order so although it it seemed like it must have been the work of a madman, given those details you know that it was this otherwise ordinary um, thursday morning in fall river massachusetts uh it. it's transpired that the front door and the basement door were locked, leaving only a side door uh, for someone to have gotten in. And uh, perhaps even more importantly, even if an assassin had found his way in, uh, the interval between the murders that I mentioned seemed very odd. You know, would, would someone from the outside have lingered in the house after killing Abby for over an hour and a half waiting for Andrew Borden's return? it wasn't really clear that Andrew was expected at any time in the um, near future. So it just seemed very strange. Uh, and that uh, you know, led the police to look inside the house at, at the possible suspects. Um, and there were three other people known to be in the house that morning, Andrew Borden's brother-in-law, John. Um, who had spent the night in an upstairs guest room, Um, but he was known to have departed shortly after breakfast. Um, That left Bridget Sullivan, the Borden's Irish housemaid, Um, but she'd been spotted washing windows outside at the time that Mrs. Borden had been killed. So the only other person who had woken up in that house um, and was not either ruled out or dead um, was Lizzie Andrew's younger daughter, Uh, And there were many things about her that seemed a little bit suspicious. She gave shifting accounts of her whereabouts during the critical period. Uh, And um, she said that when her father was killed, she'd been outside uh, in the barn in search of a sinker, which is a weight for fishing line or a piece of lead to fix a screen. Um, And then stranger still, upon discovering her father's body, um, she actually hadn't looked for her stepmother, claiming that Abby had received a note and gone out, um, and that note was never found. Um, further investigation also disclosed a motive, that the Borden household you know, really wasn't such a happy home, that in fact it was the site of a cold war between the generations, uh, and that Lizzie and her sister Emma, um, her sister Emma who was away at the time, uh, resented their father's... Miserly ways, um, and in particular, had a, a grievance against their stepmother, and conducted their lives as sort of as separately as possible. Um, and then, you know, finally, and most importantly, uh, Lizzie Borden was identified as someone who had tried to buy prussic acid the day before the murders. And while there was no uh, there was no evidence that the Borden's were had been actually poisoned. Uh, the idea that, that, she had tried to procure this, um, you know, supremely feminine mode of murder made it seem somehow more plausible that perhaps she had taken up a hatchet or an axe and, uh, carried out this planned murder in a different way. So that's a, that's a, a, a fairly brief, though, probably didn't seem that way, uh, precis of, of what actually happened, um. Why this is so dramatic is that is the identity of the suspect, you know, so that, so that as I said, the murders themselves were so gruesome and so unexpected and uh, um, so seemingly out of the blue uh, that that was enough for, for newspaper coverage. But um, when Andrew Borden's uh, younger daughter, Lizzie, was arrested, that turned the case from, you know, just national news into international news. The idea that somebody who had led a fairly normal life, in fact, who seemed to tick all the boxes of respectable middle class womanhood, Um, she was 32, unmarried, uh, and living at home as would have been expected for someone of her class, Uh, but she was very active in her church, she taught Sunday school, Um, she performed other good works, and so the idea that someone like her, rather than you know, a, a madman from the outside or some, uh, deranged immigrants. Um, and those were the sorts of people that they looked to for uh, as criminal types in that era. Uh, the idea that, you know, a normal, a a normal woman, I mean, a normal person period, but also a particular woman like Lizzie Borden, the idea that she could have committed such horrible crimes. Um, something that, that uh, made the case,
1: uh, you know, internationally famous. And you, you write in the coda to the book, and this, uh, I found fascinating, that while there is all this tremendous material out there about it that, that you've, that you've, Exhaustively researched and chronicled and, and brought to life so vividly, and, and as a storyteller for the readers, there's also some material that that has never been made public. Um, you talk about the defense file uh, files kept by the. Uh, Lizzie Borden's defense team um, that have been uh, remain locked up 125 years after the proceedings in in Springfield and that they're being held in Springfield, Massachusetts, um, which which only adds to the luster, I think, and mystery of of this great Victorian true crime mystery uh, that's still with us today. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about what might be in those files and sort of what allure and mystique they hold for you, as, as someone who's de- devoted so much of your life to, to this case, right? It's so tantalizing, and as you can imagine, I, I, I tried to get them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very frustrating.
2: Um, so the the story of those is that is that uh, Lizzie Borden, you know, put her considerable inheritance to, to good use and hired uh, terrific lawyers, one of whom was the former governor of Massachusetts, uh, and. Um, he died very suddenly, about three years after the trial, um, but his law firm continues to this day, and uh, his law firm has kept those files. And so as a result, they, they argue that, they, that they're still bound by uh, Robinson's original duty of confidentiality to his clients. And so uh, it's this odd um, conundrum for them, I guess. Uh, which is that they preserve them because they believe they're historically important. But their position is that they can never disclose them. So as to the question of what's actually in them, I mean I imagine that what's in them is very similar to the sort of material I found elsewhere because I have another um, – I, I had access to another defense attorney's files, which um, he and, – and one can only imagine what kind of association he had with the case um, – Kept in an old hip bath, you know, which is something that that um, uh, pregnant women use for hemorrhoids. Um, and he kept that in the attic. Uh,
0: and they eventually found their way to the historical society. Wow! Um, you know, my wow. guess is that it's a it's a <laughs> it's a trial diary, and it would be quite useful
2: for someone like me who's interested in the strategy of the lawyers. Uh, but of course, we don't know, right? There could be something. There could be something. Um, much more exciting you know a
1: smoking if not a smoking gun a smoking hatchet truly tantalizing Um, and I hope we get to find that out one day and that you're the one who tells us the story about what's in those records Kara Robertson began researching the boarding case as a Harvard undergraduate in 1990. She holds a Ph.D. from Oxford University and a J.D. from Stanford Law School. She clerked at the Supreme Court of the United States, served as a legal advisor to the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia at The Hague, and has written for various publications. Her scholarship has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Humanities Center, of which she is a trustee. The Trial of Lizzie Borden is her first book, and I encourage you all to go out and pick it up because it is uh, a remarkable original work, unlike anything I've, I've seen before. Uh, Cara, thank you so much for joining us today on A Dark Turn to discuss this this work. Thank you. We, we really appreciate you joining us. Well,
2: thank you. It's my pleasure.